Hey, everybody. Emily Kwong here. So all year, I've been working on a story for a new NPR series called Where We Come From, which tackles a question that immigrant families of color get asked all the time. Where are you from? Where do you come from? What seems like an easy question. No, where are you really from? Carries with it so much weight. Where do you belong? In the in-between. I belong to myself. It's an emotional environment. Soy de aquí. This is a complicated question to answer, and for me, a pretty emotional one. I'm Chinese-American, but I haven't always felt Chinese-American. And a big reason why is that I don't speak my grandparents' language, Mandarin Chinese. I remember the first time someone called me out on this, this four-year-old kid we had just met. She had one white parent and one Chinese parent, just like me. But after looking me up and down, she goes, I'm more Chinese than you because I can speak the language. And there it was, this line in the sand between a more Chinese person and a less Chinese person. I had felt this gap before, in the silence between me and my older relatives, in the subtitles I depend on to watch Chinese movies, in the shame I feel ordering at restaurants, wishing I could say more than just ni hao, xie xie, and zaijian. So when I turned 30... I decided to finally do something about it. Here is my Where We Come From story after the break. All right, so it's Friday night, and I am doing what I do every night, which is learn a little bit of Chinese vocabulary using this app. Zhen. This character, Zhen means person human and I remember drawing it with my grandma when she was still alive it actually looks kind of like to me a person walking with bell-bottom jeans that means you are Chinese so how would I say I'm Chinese American is that a thing Having an identity is confusing. (laughs) I'm Chinese on my father's side, white on my mother's side. And as a mixed-race kid in suburban Connecticut, I felt like a lost cause when it came to our language. Too old, too removed. A lot of families give up trying to speak two languages by the third generation, and that's definitely true in my family. The four of us, my dad, my mom, my sister, and me, all speak English. But I reached a breaking point this pandemic year, wondering, why is that? How did we lose this language? And how do I get it back? So I made a promise to myself. This would be the year that I try to reclaim my heritage language and figure out why I never learned it in the first place. So that's why the app and why I've been taking Chinese classes every Monday night for two hours with a lot of tone practice and flashcards in between. Sometimes I watch Ang Lee movies, trying to catch just a word or two. But it goes by so fast. And I can only repeat it back very slowly. This is really hard, and it isn't fun to be bad at something. Like, as I'm listening to myself 
speak these words. I know I'm not saying it right, and I'm just feeling kind of down, but just got to stick with it, I guess. When I was 20, a Mandarin teacher told me it was too late to start learning Chinese. I wish I hadn't listened to him. While second language acquisition is more difficult in adulthood, it's not impossible. And because it might take the rest of my life to learn, the person whose support I want most is my dad. So, yeah, this is a conversation I've actually wanted to have with you for a long time. Good. When we spoke, the cherry blossoms were out in D.C., these ephemeral pink flowers that only last a week or two. I made pork stew with eggs, my great-grandmother's recipe, to put my dad at ease, and me too. I felt that we needed our elders in the room to help us have this conversation. And as the stew cooked, we sat down on this blue couch in my living room to talk. Hi, Dad. Hello. Hi. Nice to meet you. That's my dad. He always wears a baseball cap with the letter C on it for the Cardinals, the Cubs. It doesn't really matter because for him, the C stands for Christopher. My name is uh, Christopher Kwong. I'm 62. I was born in New York City. To Hui uh, and Edgar my Kwong. My grandma City. left Beijing in the 1930s at the very start of the Sino-Japanese War. To stay safe, her family left everything and moved to southern China. And she kept moving, seizing every academic opportunity that she could. She got a scholarship to go to boarding school in India, in the Himalayas. And when she was 17, applied and got into Barnard College in New York City. Her senior year, she became the school's first non-white student body president. I actually have her yearbook photo, which says that her only vices were devouring oranges and volumes of Virginia Woolf. And for a while, I used to do both, just to feel close to her. She and her cousins and their extended families had to transition to American society and migrate into um, professions unlike what their ancestors had in China. They became doctors, lawyers, architects, things like that. She and my grandfather met in the 1950s. He spoke Cantonese in addition to Mandarin, but Mandarin was the language they shared. He became an industrial engineer. She became a deputy chief at the United Nations. And they had three sons. My dad is the oldest, and I never knew until this year that they gave him a Chinese name, Undong. Growing up as a kid in New York City, he remembers tagging alongside his grandmothers as they did the shopping in Chinatown. I just went into fish markets, meat markets, vegetable markets. Surrounded by people conversing and bartering and going about their day in Chinese. It was the only thing I understood. In a world of non-Chinese, when I was outside, it was anxiety and confusion and not knowing what was really being said and just clinging a little harder. But when you hear your native language, it's a reminder of you're safe. But here's the thing. My father stopped speaking Mandarin when he was five years old. When he was entering kindergarten, a teacher asked him to describe the snow outside, and he said It was green. Just because green was the only color word he knew in English. It's a cute story, but it shows how much he was struggling to communicate with his teacher, with his classmates, using the little English that he knew. And his parents, my grandparents, didn't want him to fall behind in school. So they made a decision. I was then given 
you know, orders to start speaking English for my own emotional and social survival. So I didn't hear Chinese again. And the household became an English-speaking one. My dad didn't protest. He put his energy towards learning this new language, though he says the transition to English was difficult. The sounds, the vowels. I just remember that summer when we were um, in Shelter Island. My mother would spend hours drilling pronunciation, letters, syntax, and things like that into me. And after a year or two, he had it. He embraced English. And as he grew up, dove into the pop culture of the time period. Watching I Dream of Genie and Gilligan's Island. With Gilligan, he fulfilled his parents' wishes, and he never really looked back. I realized I had to engage in a different world, a uh, world of English. So, you know, I should just be pragmatic and let go and go with English. Yeah. That's a big decision for a little kid to make, you know? Well, my need for, I felt for survival was uh, greater than my uh, hurt. Yeah. When you say need for survival, what do you mean? Meaning to integrate into society. You have to integrate, otherwise you're, you're, you know, you're going to be really in a terrible place. He's not wrong, but assimilation has a cost. Gaining a foothold in America meant losing the first language my dad's ever known. And that's a high price to pay. When you lose your language, it's almost a form of violence if it's taken from you, right? Amelia Sang is a sociolinguist at American University, someone who studies how languages shift across immigrant generations. You know, we're a very multilingual country and always have been, very, very diverse country, um, but we have not historically been supportive of other languages. either through sort of active suppression or through just sort of a lack of interest in supporting them. And those attitudes, those ideologies, um, are closely tied to things like nationalism and xenophobia. So I learned from Amelia that losing Mandarin isn't really my family's fault. Language suppression is not an accident. It's woven into the fabric of U.S. history, making English the dominant language by design. The idea of the melting pot is code for this telling communities of color that they must suppress their language and speak a particular kind of English in order to belong. A painful example of this is Native American boarding schools, where children were physically disciplined for speaking their native language. Another example is what's happened with Spanish speakers. For many, many years, Spanish-speaking children were physically punished in schools for speaking Spanish. They would be paddled, they would be subjected to all kinds of punishments. And although that's not acceptable now, you know, still in recent years, there's examples of people being discriminated against for that at school, you know, discrimination against African-American English in schools, all kinds of things. Examples like this and more have led some linguists to call the U.S. a language graveyard. It's how in New York City, one of the most linguistically diverse places in the world, it would make sense for my dad to so easily let go of his heritage language. At age five, it was a matter of survival. But as the years went by, it became so much more. English was a ticket to education, proof of Americanness, like acting as a protective shield in a country that has historically discriminated against Chinese people. And of course, it's the language that he and my mom used to raise our family. My parents did the right thing. I mean, I can always 
go back and learn the language, and I thought of doing that, but uh, I have to ask the question, who would I speak with? I live in a very non-Chinese world. I want to respond to this question by saying, me, Dad, I'll speak with you. But his world now is so different from the Chinatown of his childhood. I get that. And I'm still in level one classes, a true beginner. My teacher, Dennis Yue Ye Li, is very patient. Jian is to see each other, right? Yeah. So, zai jian means to see each other again, right? Goodbye, see you again. When I really started to learn this language, it felt less like speaking and more like singing. Placing my tongue and teeth in unfamiliar places, trying to match Dennis. Qi fan. Qi dian fan. Honestly, learning this language feels like a trust fall. Just knowing... These are the exact words my grandparents and great-grandparents and all my ancestors before that spoke, too. It feels like they're in the room with me, watching, maybe even cheering me on. Oh, no, I got this. Um. The more I speak, the more my Chinese half starts to feel whole. And I've decided that any shame I feel about bad pronunciation, fumbles with grammar is nothing like the shame of not knowing the language at all. Half an hour into this conversation with my dad, I decide it's time to show him what I've learned. While he can't speak Mandarin anymore, just hearing the language brings some of it back. When I say something like, I love you, do you internalize that sentence? If I were to say, Dad, I love you, in English. In English, of course, it resonates Chinese. It's like, I registered Emily's learning Chinese. Maybe if I get better at the pronunciation, one day it will like... Our words will always be English, Emily. This stings to hear. But I know my dad's just trying to protect me from disappointment and reassure me that not knowing is okay. At family reunions over plates of dim sum... My dad can follow the gist of a Mandarin conversation between his cousin, Xiao Ying, and her daughter, Amy. Even though he has a five-year-old's vocabulary, he still understands the feelings beneath the words. It still registers an emotional uh, twang for me. It is a form of comfort on some level. I don't want to be morbid, but when I'm dying, I'm sure my last thoughts will be in Chinese my brain will revert to that earliest stage of my life. But that's a topic for another story. (laughs) Hearing this, I realize I could be someone who speaks Mandarin to my dad in his last moments on Earth. Provide him the comfort that only your native language can. I've heard a lot of Asian American families cautioning each other these days not to speak their language not to show their faces. The rise in anti-Asian hate this year makes it hard to even leave the house some days. But there's one thing my dad and I agree on, and it's the importance of telling the truth. And English doesn't tell the whole truth about us, where we come from, and the cost of hiding who you are. We're here. Our culture can't be intimidated. And I 
after what happened in Atlanta, I wanted to just learn Chinese even more. Does that make any sense? Uh-huh. The key is to meet challenges, uh, stare down adversity, confront intimidation, and uh, to always uh, strive for the truth. I think if you strive for the truth, you've um, lived life. I mean, my own birth certificate doesn't tell the truth. It says I'm white, even though my father was standing right there in the delivery room. And this erasure of him is an erasure of me. I'm tired of occupying this half position and of perpetually feeling like I'm not Chinese enough. Sociolinguist Amelia Sang says there's a term for what I've been feeling all these years, racial imposter syndrome. And moving through it requires flexibility, self-compassion, reimagining what it means to be Chinese in America. Identity is something more than a box you check on a form. When we think of identities as sort of these category boxes, it really doesn't have room for that fluidity, that hybridity, that, that contact and dynamism that's really what life is about. I mean, people yeah. are always in contact with other people. They're learning, they're adapting, they're changing, they're hanging on to things, you know, they're, they're learning new things. Um, and, and identity never stays still. Is it a thing we create? Yeah, it is. Absolutely. Absolutely. And part of how we create it is through language. The languages we speak, who we talk to, but also how we talk about ourselves and other people. So I am creating a new story for myself. Yes, I didn't grow up speaking Mandarin Chinese because of my grandparents' choices, language suppression in the U.S., and my own racial imposter syndrome. But it's also true that I belong to a Chinese-American family. I felt it when my dad gave me kanji when I had a cold or fruit after dinner, when my parents helped us hand out hongbao at school for Lunar New Year. And I know I felt it when I was with my grandparents. They were trying to teach me Mandarin in the years before they died. Yes, I think there's more eggs. Do you see more eggs? Where? I've been watching home movies lately, trying to catch snippets of their words. In this one... My grandma and grandpa are helping me hunt for Easter eggs. I'm almost two years old, wearing a straw hat and wandering around their house with a basket. Grandpa Edgar is the exuberant one, giving away all of my hiding spots and offering me chocolate. While Grandma Hui is the soothing one, searching for my basket when it goes missing. Grandma died when I was five years old, but I clearly remember her showing me how the character for rain looks like raindrops, how to count from one to ten, and her lessons really stayed with me. My grandmother taught my father English so he could survive. And I find it kind of beautiful that in her last years, she was teaching me Mandarin Chinese so it could survive within me. There's one last thing I want to show my dad before we go. We're both tired, running out of words. So I get up quickly and I grab this kid's book called Long is a Dragon. It's got a pink cover and has a smiling dragon across the front. Grandma gave me this book during our Chinese lessons. I remember her handing it to me 
along with a pack of markers. Like a six-pack with different colors, and we were using the black one to make almost brush strokes, like Chinese characters. And I got confused, and I accidentally wrote in the book instead of on the notepad. And you can see this, like, mark I made. A mark I made over 20 years ago. Grandma told me in that moment, don't worry, Emily, this is your book to keep. This is proof that she and I had a connection through the language, that she and I had a real connection that was ours. And (laughs) it's okay. She and I had a connection that was ours, and she was trying to teach me. Right. And it's kind of like, even after all these decades, and it's kind of like evidence of that to me. Finding this book was a really powerful affirmation of what I'm trying to do learning Chinese an adult as an adult because it doesn't feel like a language that's other it feels like a language that's ours it belongs to our family and I can engage with it if I want to and as much as I want to it is who we are so we have to cling or retain or perhaps relearn what we are so I think, you know, this, this is a journey of exploration for you, and this is so you can tie back to where you came from. That means a lot to hear you say that. Last Chinese class. I don't like it. Luckily, I signed up for Chinese too. That's right. I have graduated to Chinese, too. I can speak in simple but full sentences. And a few days ago, my family got a call from Betty, my grandma's sister. She had called up my Aunt Nellie, my grandma's cousin, and they chose Chinese names for my sister Amanda and me. Wen Mei and Wen Da. Wen Mei means, uh, uh, means literary Mei means beautiful. And so the generational name would be when second when when da means excellence. So it's when may and when da. So you need to. It's going to take me a while to get used to our new names, when may and when da for Emily and Amanda. But I'll tell you what, language is a bridge that can be broken, but it can be rebuilt too. 我叫黄文美，我是。After 30 years, I can say this in two languages, and I know my grandmother would be proud to hear it. This story was reported for NPR's new series, Where We Come From, stories from immigrant communities of color. You can catch more Where We Come From episodes, plus watch a video about my journey to learn Mandarin Chinese on our website at npr.org slash where we come from and across NPR video and audio platforms. The series was created and produced by Anjali Sastry. Our senior editor is Julia Furlan. Our assistant producer is Deba Motasham. Our visuals producer and editor is Michael Zamora. Nicole Werbeck is our supervising visuals editor, and Yolanda Sanguini is our director of programming. A huge thank you to everyone who gave feedback on this episode. Viet Le, Giselle Grayson, Yoe Shaw, Chris Benderev, Celeste Headley, Laura Garbus, Mina Tavakoli, and Brent Bachman. 
and my personal thanks to the folks at Fluent City Language School. Teachers Dennis Yue-Yo Lee and Jia Yun Xiao and fellow student Megan Arias. To the whole team at Shortwave, thank you so much for your support. And to my family, Christopher Kwong, Linda Kwong, Amanda Kwong, Timothy Kwong, Amy Wang, Betty Louie, Lin Lee, and Nellie Lee. Xie xie. I'm Emily Kwong, your reporter and host for Shortwave. We're back in your feeds tomorrow. Thank you for listening.